welcome to JudgeCast. This is Sean Cananese, level two judge from Sacramento, California and Berkeley, California. This Here is with uh, me. Jose Boveda, level one, Sacramento, California, just Sacramento, California. And we have a special guest tonight, Kevin Binswinger, a level two judge from Texas. I'm not sure exactly where in Texas, so we'll let him clarify it for you. Um, however, he is the regional coordinator for the southwest of the United States. Um, he's here with us to ask us, well, actually to ask us what the hell we were doing, sending him a list of questions. Um, so, Kevin, we have a few questions for you. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you do in the southwest of the U.S., what it means to be a regional coordinator, and the sorts of things that you are doing as regional coordinator. Okay, so I'm actually from Austin, Texas, which everyone else in Texas will tell you isn't really Texas. Um, but it counts enough for me. It's down in the uh, southern tip of the, of the country. Yes, it's somewhere in the middle of this giant wasteland that is eight hours in any direction to drive out of. I have the straw, the nice straw cowboy hats that they gave us for Pro Tour Austin sitting on my mantle as my piece of Texas. <laughs> nice. So, so, so like that's that. your, your takeaway. So you're actually not really in Texas, but you're responsible for the whole state and some other states nearby. Um, and what do your responsibilities really entail as a regional coordinator? Right. I mean, we've talked a little bit about within uh, you know Edwin Zhang, who's regional coordinator for China, or say um, uh, Takanori-san from Japan, other places like that. But when you're part of the U.S. So what we all do is basically the same, and that the regional coordinators are the guys that or gals that intercept if you have problems in your region. We are the point person for questions that go down or things that come up. For example, the Barnes & Noble project. Uh, for folks that don't know, Wizards of the Coast teamed up with Barnes & Noble to run a bunch of promos of Magic the Gathering at the Barnes & Noble game day. And this isn't something that falls neatly into the spheres or pillars. So we have the spheres and pillars that the L4s and the L5s run, which is one way that the program is organized around the things that we do. And then we have the regional coordinators, which are tilting it 90 degrees. And it's the regional coordinators work with Andy to get stuff done, and then we manage things in a region. So for the Barnes & Noble project, I got in touch with my folks in the southwest United States. Andy. And because that's something that draws down on a geographic line. Gotcha. So the Andy Hacked, sorry, Andy Hacked, the community organizer guy at Wizards of the Coast who oversees the judge program. So some of the other things we do, uh, we're now involved in staffing at Grand Prix because we are people here. We're the guys that are supposed to know folks in the region. So uh, the GP, I have three Grand Prix in my region. Uh, Denver, which is coming up, it may or may not have happened by the time this goes live. You also have what uh, Grand Prix in somewhere else in Texas, right? Dallas. Okay. Dallas, which is in Fort Worth on Houston Street, which are two other cities in Texas. <laughs> I'm um, sure Google Maps loves that. Right. Uh, and Kansas City. I have three this year, which is more than any of the other regional coordinators in the United States. And yes, I feel way more proud of that than I should. <laughs> <laughs> well, because no, I think you I'm should assuming, be. You should be. 
Yeah, I mean, they give this to you because they know you can handle it, right? I mean, it's not that they just say, well, our markets say that we have to have it in these places. I mean, they have to put it in places where they know they can trust the people to do the right job, right? Um, I would like to think it's me, but a lot of it is probably demographics. I have one of the biggest regions um, because it's everything you think of the Southwest and then Utah and uh, Nebraska and a few other states. Gotcha. Not not quite L.A. or you don't go to right. the coast, but you take Arizona off, right? Uh, yes. Okay. I don't. I I'm not responsible for Nevada or California, but I do have uh, Arizona. Gotcha. So so those are, that's a huge region. Lots and lots of players. Um, lots of states. Lots of different judges to worry about. Um, I also think figure that from sort of the southern tip of that, it's kind of hard to connect well with people that you'd like to test for level two in the further northern reaches of your region or make sure that they, you know, stay in touch and get tested when they need to be tested for leveling up. Right. Um, that sort of thing. I know that there's this new program on remote certification. Um, and that's something that falls a lot to the regional coordinators. What's your experience with this or what's, what are you anticipating being your experience with this? Um, if we were to ask you this question, say a year from now. Yeah, I'm actually really glad you brought this up because I've talked to a couple of other regional coordinators who do a lot of this. And I know there are folks in the region that need to take advantage of this opportunity. So remote certification is an acknowledgement that we don't have enough level twos to go around in some places, especially in the Southwest where everything is incredibly spread out. So the perfect example is you are somebody who's the local go-to guy for rules in your store. You, everyone respects you. You're interested in becoming a judge. You don't have anybody near you that can test you. You don't go to any big tournaments. If you're in my region, you'd email me and you'd say, Hey, I'm interested in becoming a judge. And I'd be able to talk to you and give you the test through email or over the phone or some other method. Um, so as when, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say as of yet, uh, regretfully, nobody has come to me asking for remote certification, which is something I want to do because I know the region needs it. And anything I can do to plug that and sort of get the message out that this opportunity is available would be awesome. So do you know of a way that I could, you know, tell a bunch of people about this opportunity? Um, yeah, I think I think we got a, a way to do that. And that, <laughs> uh, uh, we're doing it right now. <laughs> Um, yeah, but that's a good point because I personally have not heard of this um, until uh, recently. And I, I don't think it's out there in, in, in a lot of channels to tell people that they can basically, you know, remote certify uh, to do this. That, that would have been a, a, a big deal for me because uh, my, my um, journey to judging started you know, a long time ago. And, and it was really hard to test and uh, certify uh, back when I was looking into doing it when I was in Florida, you had to sort of track down uh, the L3, not even an L2, and yeah. the L3 in the in the region and, and have him test you. And if for any reason he did not go to a big tournament, um, you just didn't have that chance. So, you know, it, this is, I guess, another way to, to um, you know, open the taps or to open the floodgates and, and help uh, uh, swell the ranks of uh, judges. Absolutely. This is the sort of thing where the regional coordinator is, in a lot of cases, if you just need help, you don't know who else to turn to, you turn to the regional coordinator. And if you come to me, maybe I say, hey, there's a level two, two hours away across the state border. 
Um, but maybe it's, hey, there isn't anybody. Let's find a couple of hours where we can talk. Oh, that's great. So, um, so the process does involve sort of the human connection. I want to um, make sure that uh, people know that, that it's not sort of like an email application, get sent a test, pass, suddenly you're a judge and you're like, hey, uh, what do I do now? Um, <laughs> yeah, Jose, when you, when you went to certify, when you went to test with a judge, what was that experience like for you? What happened that weekend? Yeah, um, I went uh, to, you know, sort of put in my time as a L0, let people watch me, um, uh, you know, how, how I comport myself uh, on the floor. Um, and then uh, when there was a break, um, I had a judge give me a judge test. Um, I don't know who that judge was. Uh, he'll go unnamed. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I don't know if he, he's proud or not proud of, uh, certifying me. So. Well, I can tell you right now, um, that was me. <laughs> the... So not proud, right? Uh, of course not. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, actually Jose was, um, yeah, the first person that I certified on my very first day as an L2. So congratulations. Um, so I, I certified and then. Uh, Jose had taken his test and I graded it with him, went over it with him and he passed also. So that was pretty awesome. It was, it was a great moment all around. Many beers were had. I mean, virtual beers. They weren't really cool. <laughs> yes. 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 Coca-Cola's. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, yeah. And so, so that was the process for you, Jose. Um, so I guess that, that idea of talking with a senior judge, um, you know, being able to ask questions, get your, you know, um, get any kind of wrong questions you got on the test clarified in person or have somebody talk you through them instead of just reading the answers on a test and, you know, or used to seeing in the judge center with, uh, you know, you get an answer wrong and it gives you the comp rules citation. It's a little bit more in depth than that where you can ask follow-up questions and clarifications, that sort of thing. Um, so that, that sounds like a really great program to be able to remotely certify somebody. I guess I just have one question for you, Kevin. Um, how do you make sure that they don't uh, just – Google all the answers for a better, for lack of a better term. Um, so there is no better term. You can't say Bing yeah. the answer because <laughs> Bing uses Google. <laughs> um, in short, you just have to be able to trust the judge that you're working with, which we should be able to do anyway, right? Of course. Um, so the the entire process is basically what you just talked about, only. Because of distance, we can't meet face-to-face. But we can do all of the rest. And if they can talk to us and convince us that they're ready for the the test anyway, they're probably not going... We don't need to worry about them cheating on the test. We probably don't need to worry about them failing the test either. I I would love to believe that. But I'm paranoid. Well, if, sure. Yeah, I mean, if you're really paranoid about, about the candidate you're working with, you could set up a webcam or something. But really, honestly, I don't think we need to go to that extreme. If somebody sure. is going to be unscrupulous enough to cheat, I don't think they're going to last long in judging anyway. There's another component to this, Jose, also. And that is that, you know, this is not somebody that's just out of the blue said, hey, I want to test. And they're like, oh, well, I don't never heard of you before. We haven't talked at all before. So, sure, let's test you. It's much more... Um, you know, it's it's much more of a conversation. It's not meant to be the sort of, um, you know, this isn't University of Phoenix where you can just sort of let a whole bunch of slides pass you by <laughs> online. 
Um, and, and then you just say, okay, sure, I took that course and I get my credit. You know, it's, it's much more, you're going to have to interact with somebody within the program at some point. I mean, it's the whole point of remote certifications yeah. is tying regions together when, you know, distances between large cities or between rural areas, I mean, just wouldn't make that logistically possible. So remote certification, if necessary, is available for level one and level two. I'm just talking about level one. When we get to level two where the stakes are higher, you have to have much more in the way of knowledge and interaction with the candidate. For level one, we're still talking several hours of of emails and conversations and things just in terms of how much time the entire process takes. And if you think about the amount of time you spent with Sean when you tested, it was a whole day. This is, this is comparable. You yeah, just get uh, to break it up. Only a, it was not only a whole day. Uh, Sean knew me. He knew uh, you know, my metal. He knew... Uh, 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 Wouldn't that be light steel? <laughs> no, not light steel. <laughs> uh, Mirren all the way. Um, okay. Oh, sorry. Um, me so too. He, basically, he he had interacted with me plenty before, so it wasn't just that I rolled in. I think he, you know, his mentorship was invaluable to me. I, I, you know, I, it was indispensable, and you know, it's it's a great system. I just I don't want to naysay it. Um, and you're so. not alone in that in in being concerned. It it comes down to trust, I guess. The other thing is this isn't <laughs> it isn't intended to replace the way you certified, the way I certified. This is when you have no other options. This isn't for, oh, I don't like the local L2. Because if you come to me and there's an L2 30 minutes from you, I'm going to ask some pointed questions about why you're not working with that person. Great, great. And yeah, maybe I, the answer is they stopped judging three years ago. But <laughs> <laughs> no, And that's, that's, that's a good point. That's, that's what I think really um, you know, puts, this, puts this program uh, on the level is that you have uh, these regional organizers who can see, well, is this person, you know, three hours from anywhere where he can certify? Well, then maybe it's tough for him to get out. Let's go through this uh, online process as opposed to, yes, there, there's an L2 half an hour away. There's a store that's running PTQs uh, in the next town over. Um, can you make it over there and start talking to the L2 there? So yeah. that's, that's a great thing. I mean, there are states in the United States that have, well, at least there were a couple of months ago. I don't want to say, uh, putting the caveat there in case I'm wrong, there were some states that only had one certified judge. Uh, and the magic communities are there. It's that the judges are lagging behind the players. Right. Okay, well, that's a great uh, summary of what remote certification is. Um, and thank you very much for that piece, Kevin. Um, now, there are a couple other pieces. Oh, before I go on to the other pieces, though, I also wanted to mention that there is a website that was put together that outlines all of the remote certification sort of details and who you should contact and that sort of thing. Um, and so we'll put a link to that in our show notes. Um, and hopefully people can, you know, if you're hearing us from the middle of nowhere, hopefully you can uh, contact your regional coordinator who is not in the middle of nowhere. He's usually in a large city. Um, and if he is, then he will be able to hopefully direct you into the right avenues to get certified. And, and, of course, if people have any questions, they can just email us, uh, judgecast at gmail.com, and uh, we can uh, help point them in the right direction. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one thing that we've done since day one is uh, connect people with our local you know, L2 or the regional coordinator when they say, hey, I have no idea where I'm going with this. Um, and that's also something that uh, hopefully this, this website also helps out with. Um, and I also wanted to give a shout-out to 
uh, James Reed, who is a level one judge who I just certified a couple weeks ago. Um, and he was the one that sent me this, this link to this webpage so we could talk about it a little bit more. So, um, <laughs> James, good on you for catching that. Um, hopefully we'll see you at a PTQ locally soon. Okay. Um, now, this mess with the Texans section here of our podcast tonight, we also have a piece of it that we want to talk about, and that is war. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, there's been a call to arms. Um, and, and now, this, this sort of has its, its history uh, here in California um, with this sort of competition that, that gets sort of brewed between different regions of the DCI. Um, and we can go into ours in a little bit here, but tell me about your war, Kevin. Tell me about Kevin Benswanger's war. So I'm good friends with both both the proponents of, of your war, uh, with of originally Ricky and and David de la Iglesia from Spain. And I was at a, a Grand Prix in Washington DC last year, and David is sort of a troublemaker. And he instigated this fight between myself and a now level three Andreas Jepsen from Denmark. And it took us a while to, to find the stakes, to get the stakes right, because I don't know if you've looked at a map, but not many people really match up to Texas. Um, <laughs> but in, in honor of, of what Ricky and uh, David did, uh, I challenged Andreas to a judge war. Um, where our goal is, like that one, we want to encourage promotion and training and bringing in new judges. Um, right. It's so, not actually about animosity. It's about developing your respective <clears throat> communities. Yeah. Friendly competition. Right. This is so, a guy that I would love for him to buy me dinner at a pro tour when I beat him in this conflict. Absolutely. Uh, I, yes, I will harbor no ill will to him when he has to, when he has to buy me dinner. Right. right. This uh, so is, the competition this is, is uh, a race to 55 cumulative judge levels uh, in these little subregions. So f- it's not total judges. It's, say, an L2 is worth two, an L1 is worth one, and it is a race to 55. Okay. And why did you pick 55, and how did you start off this? Are, where, what kind of growth are you looking at from beginning to end in this whole process? Because we he's were, about to get – he has 54 in the queue. That's why. <laughs> I wish. Um, so we were originally in the 30s. We, we had to take some time and, and really crunch the numbers on, on the, the DC – on the judge center to figure it out. But we were in the 30s, and we figured 55 will take a while, and it will give us something to shoot for okay, because so we wanted it doubling. to last a couple of years. Yeah, it's almost doubling your capacity there, um, yes. which is huge. Um. So I actually room? fell behind very quickly when Andreas certified for level three at the next Pro Tour. Right, right. Well, and that's, you know, maybe he set it up that way. Who knows? <laughs> so, um, so, yeah. What do you guys He's the right one now? that had 54 in the queue. Uh, well, I believe, well, sadly, I believe I was actually one behind when we got, well, I was one ahead when we got started, and I'm now one behind. Okay. Uh, so that's uh, actually. By my last mm-hmm. count, he has 40, and I have 39. Okay, so you're actually growing still, um, and you've got a lot of ways to go, but that's what this is all about. It's about growing. So, right. Um, so it looks like – you know, outline the terms for this here. It's Texas and Louisiana, right? So, yeah, so it's, it's the Cowboys, Texas and, and Louisiana, uh, because those – we work sort of very well together as one unit. We go to the same PTQs. Their judges come here. We go there. 
versus the Vikings uh, of Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. Okay, so Denmark, Sweden, Norway. So it also sounds like you've got sort of a conservative and generally liberally perceived group also. (laughs) They got Um, Cowboys versus Vikings. Seriously, that is awesome. Well, isn't that Uh, a divisional matchup too in the NFL? (laughs) Is it? I I don't know anything about that sport. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, hand egg. Packers won. (laughs) Okay. And that's all the football we have for you today, folks. Um, Let's see. Yep. There you go. If you you don't know by now. (laughs) Okay. So, well, good. So you have, looks like another 15, 16 before you beat Andreas. Yes. Um, And Uh, then we also have our own war to talk about here in, in California, our sort of analog to what's going on with you guys between uh, Texas and Louisiana and Northern Europe, uh, where to give you a little background on where we are now, um, I actually calculated the figures using um, the method of war between Texas and Northern Europe and also calculated it using the ones that they had originally set up in, in the uh, competition they set up between David de la Iglesia and Ricky. Um, I think actually Ricky has now transferred sort of his stake in the bet over to um, Eric, Eric Levine. Um, but I'm not really sure on how or whether that's accurate. Um, there are, you know, I think that's the case, but anyway. it looked like you were the inheritor for a while, weren't you? Um, you know, I think if we win, I'll definitely have a part in it, but I don't think necessarily that I'm uh, responsible for it. Um, yeah, not if you lose, you'll have a part in it. Just if you win, <laughs> I think I'll be able to say I helped. Um, I don't think I'll be entitled necessarily to a seat at the day- table paid for by <laughs> David Dale Iglesia. Um, but I'll, I'll be able to say, you know, we helped. Um, so right now where we are, um, I think the, the race was to 75 and right now California is at 71. Um, and if I remember correctly, um, Spain is at 62. So we're definitely pulling away. Um, hopefully we'll be able to just put this to bed and be done with it. Um, hopefully by, you know, it would be nice to be able to say by the uh, what Worlds in San Francisco at the end of the year here. Um, I'm thinking we'll probably get it done before then. But uh, who knows? So that's Now, is Ricky going to temporarily change his location in Judge Center to be the 75th judge? Um, is he going to change back? I think, I think we're actually taking that hit. And I think, you know, it's actually more of a statement to say, oh, we don't even need Ricky. We can do this without him. Like, that's, a, that's actually a pretty big statement to make, so... Um, yeah, but but actually, if you calculate it by the number of levels, um, I think we're about uh, nine ahead, just like we are with the actual number of judges. I think we're ten ahead. I think it's uh, 72 to 82. So basically, um, if we're counting by levels, I think we have one more level two than they do and nine more or eight more level ones. So um, that's kind of where we are right now. Um, where did you start? Do you know? Um, you know, I don't know how long ago we started. Even I, I think that's a good question for Ricky. It was it was a couple of years at this point. I think like a year and a half. Yeah, it has been a little while, uh, and so it is sort of nearing sort of a natural conclusion at this point, where I think we're getting close. Um, at least, I mean, David has a long way to go, but I think we're <laughs> uh, I'm sure he knows that. Right. Well, he's spending all his time flying to American Grand Prix now, so. <laughs> Right. Well, he's just here to intimidate all of our L zeros. They they have to you know, leave the Grand Prix thinking, oh, there's no way I can match up to that. 
but yeah, actually he's, 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 he's been on the wrong coast for that, but I believe he's told me he's going to Dallas and this will make the third one in like three months for him. Wow. Great. Um, Dallas, Atlanta and Nashville. Ah, well that's definitely, you know, one of those other judges that, you know, judges the game, sees the world. Um, that's one of those things that you, know, you don't often get to see, um, as a judge, you think, you know, I'm going to be at my local store the whole time. And then occasionally you get this, you know, oh, start of a grand prix and then, wow. Okay. I'll decide pro tour. Hey, it's in my neighborhood. And that, <laughs> wow, that was fun. So why don't we go to the next one? That's, you know, 500 miles away and kind of ramps up from there. Um, I know Alexi Gusev has done a whole bunch of that and right now. He's in Paris. No. <laughs> so, okay. We talked a little bit about, about a war with you in Northern Europe and, you know, between Spain and you and uh, California here. Um, there's one other thing that has happened with you recently. Um, I know this is sort of an awkward topic for, for most folks that test for level three and don't immediately pass. Um, but I also know that these days it's pretty common to see, uh, candidates that test for level three. They, they don't pass their first time, but then they pass on their second or third attempt. And it just sort of happens that way where sometimes you need that first try to really understand what you're up against. So I know you've tested for level three recently. Um, do you care to talk about that at all? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, and I I read somewhere, and I don't have the figures, but that it was most candidates, about half, fail the first try. Mm-hmm. It's like that scene in The Matrix where they say nobody makes it the first jump. But what right. if he makes it? <sighs> nobody makes it. So, so yes, I, I tested for level three uh, in the late part of, of 2010. Yeah, that was last year. Um, and... And I didn't get there yet. I guess we'll say I, I have high hopes, and I've been I've been told that I'm still the good things are still expected out of me. So I guess I have to keep going. You hear that, Sean? No one makes their first jump. I know it's kind of intimidating. <laughs> um, oh no, but I'm sure you'll be fine. Uh-huh. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's. Uh, I I sincerely hope everyone does well. Uh but wow, is it so much harder than I expected. So I know that there's a lot of sort of mystery surrounding what's actually on the test, what's actually part of the interview, um, some of that you really can't talk about. Um, but what would you say to somebody who's at level two, they sort of had maybe a level four come to them and say, hey, uh, when do you think you're going to test for level three? Or, hey, you know, maybe we could use a level three in your region. Um, have you given any thought to it? what would you have it as advice for that level two judge? Um, or maybe that level one judge is like someday, you know, I, I want to be there someday. What do you have advice for, for them as far as the test goes? Um, well, the cliche answer that everybody sort of gives is act like the level you want to be and people will recognize it. And it, it's cliche, but it is true because going up to my, into my interview the number one thing that I kept getting back and feedback from people I talked to was, was act like you're level three, act like you're level three. Because it's not enough to just know your stuff anymore. The level threes run the program and they move it forward and they're most of the time the go-to person. So you think of, you think of the names of level threes that you've heard of um, and the people that you really respect and it's when you make level three, you're sort of expected to be among that class. Maybe you haven't been involved with a program forever like some of those folks, but you're expected to be able to fill their huge shoes. 
Got it. So I have to be John Alder for what you're saying. Um, can your facial hair be as amazing as his? It's Not a lot nearly. to ask for. <laughs> I was oh, saying you could do it, okay. but I couldn't. Yes. I, I do like to think about, so I, I know you guys have talked a little bit about the, the written in, in past uh, episodes, uh, yeah, but I found a kind of great way to describe the interview. Uh, and I can do it without breaking any of the confidentiality agreements that get ninjas sent towards me. Okay, fantastic. Um, We're not responsible for any ninjas, though. Right. Just saying. Yeah. Right. I, I am, may hold you guys responsible for cancer, but not for ninjas. Okay. Right. <laughs> um. So when you, think about, when you think about the level threes that are running the huge events around the world, like nationals or giant open weekends or... Uh, team leading or head judging a Grand Prix, they are the leaders. They are the guys that, or the girls that you go to when there's a crisis, and they are the cool heads that prevail that solve the crisis. This is really hard to test in a candidate, especially because if you're level two hoping to get to level three, the folks that are testing you are threes, fours, and fives. So if you're in a crisis and they're observing you, there are obviously some threes, fours, or fives there. Right. It doesn't write. So the interview is designed to see if you are that person, to see if you can handle a crisis and be the go-to person or be the leader that the program expects out of level three judges. Because it's not enough to just know the rules or just know the policies. You have to be the go-to person. You have to be the leader in the program. Got it. So these are these are scenarios where you're the head judge. You're given a situation, and you know how you deal with that situation. It might not be, you know, it's definitely not going to be something right out of the IPG. It's going to be <laughs> something that you need to think on your feet for, and you need to show some initiative and and show some leadership, but also come to the right conclusion that is in line with the philosophy of the IPG. What the DCA wants out of its leaders, that sort of thing. Sort of, yeah. It's, I mean, you've described it, and everyone describes it as a Kobayashi Maru. Right. And it's to see what kind of a leader you can be, to, to see if you can solve a crisis, yes, that you haven't prepared for, that doesn't have a neat line in the IPG explaining what to do. Got it. Okay. So, uh, so I take it, what was the, the part of your test? Because the sort of two halves of the test, the interview and the rules exam, those are two sort of separate halves, and you can pass one and fail the other. Right. Um, how did that work out for you? Um, I passed, so I passed the written. My panel described me, and this won't be a surprise to anyone that really knows me, as a rules wonk. Mm-hmm. Um, and <clears throat> I did some good things in the interview and did some really bad things in the interview. Uh, and so I, I, was not, I was not recommended to level three for that. Uh, mostly because they didn't see enough of the sort of things they're looking for from an L3 yet. And the great thing about that panel is you're working with some of the smartest judges in the program. So if you blow it, and lots of people do, and there's no shame in that, I hope, because, you know, I did it. Um, If that happens, you have really smart folks there that can say, all right, let's talk about it. Got it. So, so this is really a learning experience in the form of a test also at some point. Yeah. Um, because if you make it this far, people want you to succeed. Your panel is rooting for you. Right. Um, 
So it's it's as much a disappointment. Well, it's a it's a disappointment to them as well as to you if you don't pass. So they want to do everything they can to help you get there in the future. Okay. So that's huge advice for anyone wanting to test for L three. I, I don't know anybody who's going to do that. Um, but, <laughs> um, no, but seriously, I really do appreciate that. Um, I guess we're sort of. Do you have anything else to talk about in the test there? Um, or are we done with messing with you as a Texan? We can also have you stick around and we can talk about the other parts of the show here. Uh, I think you wanted to, to talk briefly about conferences, right? Yes, that's right. Thank you for reminding me. I left that off the, <laughs> uh, left that off the agenda here. Yes, regional conferences. Um, your regional coordinator, hopefully you're coordinating regional things. Um, tell me more about conferences. Uh, sure. Wow, it's almost like those two phrases, regional conference and regional coordinator, go together. Right. <laughs> um, almost. Almost. Uh, so <clears throat> this is something that uh, got done a lot in Europe, and I think it seems to me like it's one of those things that we are trying to bring to the rest of the world from the, the successes that happened in Europe, is let's get a bunch of judges in a room for a day or a couple of days and have it be about judging. And let's leave the tournament concerns aside if we can, and let's hang out and do some seminars and some EDH and some pizza uh, and some role play if we can. And so the regional coordinators are given the task of making some of these happen. Like uh, role play, like I'm attacking <laughs> the darkness? Yes, yes. Um, oh. It's almost like uh, there's some game that uses dice that's also owned by Wizards of the Coast. How do I get to one of these? Uh, so it turns out when you have a bunch of people in a region and you need to make something happen for them, the regional coordinator is the best person for it. So we are trying to organize a conference in an area that works for most of the judges, set out some time in a weekend, maybe in the same weekend as an event beforehand, maybe not if we can find the space, and make it happen exactly the way that you all had your conference uh, in California. I guess That's it was right. a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, it was actually the Martin Luther King Day, which happened right after the San Jose Open, uh, the Star City Games Open. Um, we had, I think, 22 judges show up, a total of 42 levels among them. Um, and it was pretty pretty awesome show. Um, we had five seminars, uh, on one of which was one that I gave on bribery and collusion. <laughs> right. And then we also How did... to bribery and collusion. Right. How to bribery and collusion correctly. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think we, we called it uh, how to lose on purpose without being DQ'd. Uh, the whole idea being that um, if you're trying to lose by conceding to somebody, you better do it right. Otherwise, you'll be DQ'd. Um, but anyway, there's, um, that's an article someday, not, not a topic for judge cast right now. Um, but right. anyway, we had five different seminars. Um, we had, um, two different role-playing sessions that each lasted about an hour. And then we were, you know, we also got pizza. We got some EDH in afterward. Um, it was really great, great time to, you know, meet judges from other areas. Um, we did have a lot that came, uh, from, you know, Northern California mostly, um, but we had a couple from Virginia. You know, the Star City crew was out there for for most of it. Um, we also had a couple from Southern California were able to come up. So it was really uh, an awesome time. Um, yeah. So 
that's what a conference really can do is, you know, tied the community get together really well. Um, and I think one of the biggest takeaways from a conference like that is that you get the chance to correct misperceptions or what would otherwise be blown rulings. And you get a chance to correct it in a way that's educational, not punitive. Uh, you don't have to wait for somebody to blow a call on the tournament floor before you tell them, hey, this is actually how we should do this instead, um, which is really, really valuable for the people that are actually going to be playing in the tournament so that they don't have to endure that before it actually gets corrected. So there's a lot of good benefit there. Yeah, I mean, we the, we judges tend to be very social, and conferences are a way to hang out and do all the talking about random scenarios and things and education without the pesky event getting in the way. Right. <laughs> um, Silly, pesky event. And... If it runs along, if it runs the day before a PTQ, or the conference gets support from Wizards of the Coast, or in my case, I'm looking at having an event before having a conference right before a Grand Prix, so that people already have an excuse to be there. Right, and it's an extra day of hanging out and and doing all this stuff, and then the big event that you came to go to anyway. Right, that's actually something we should talk about too. I guess is is the support from Wizards of the Coast for these conferences. Um, you know, I, there was a little bit of a dust up over who gets judge foils for what events and how does that work. Um, now that's all settled with actually to clarify, um, Andy just basically said that, uh, judge foils, you know, you're not going to get them for the star city opens that you used to last year. Um, you're not going to get them for the TCG player opens, nothing like that. Instead you get them for a very succinct set of, uh, things that go on. And then we also have this other nebulous program we'll talk about in the future. <clears throat> so those programs are, um, or those tournaments are, Grand Prix, Nationals, Pro Tours. Um, and that's when you get Judge Foils for working at a tournament. Um, but then also, you also get Judge Foils for regional conferences that are organized by the regional coordinators. So that's definitely a way that you can, um, you know, it's, being a part of this program, being part of uh, a conference, is really a great way to um, you know develop yourself as a judge. And the DCI wants to recognize that. And because they're going through regional coordinators to do this, it makes sense to actually give something of value uh, for your time and for your effort, and sort of as a thank you. What the program wants to do with Judge Foils is develop the program, get more judges, get better judges, provide a better experience for everybody. Um. Supporting uh, what I was told, and I wasn't regional coordinator when this first started up, but what I was told is that the big tournaments were a way to bring in more judges from bigger areas, and it was there was an emphasis on leadership and mentorship and seminars and things like that. And that was something that they were working on before. Now they've come to the regional coordinators and they've said, we can support you when you hold a conference. You get a bunch of judges in an area, and we can make it worth their while, basically. We can provide foils to help people get to conferences and travel greater distances and incentivize them to become better judges. Right. So, so these are the same judge foils that you get at a Pro Tour or Grand Prix, the same sort of things, just maybe not in the same quantities, but enough to make it worth their while to, you know, if I needed to sell them on eBay to pay for my plane ticket to get to L.A. and back, I could probably figure a way to do that. Yeah, or if you I, just want to really sinkhole someone. <laughs> right. 
Yes. If if we can make people want to be better judges, let's do it. Good, good. That's an awesome way to approach it. I'm really, really glad that, you know, it's also really nice to hear directly from Andy, um, you know, exactly what's going on with the program and, and how that's going to work. Um, I know there was a little bit of confusion regarding the San Jose Open and how that was going to work out. Um, but I think, um, you know, now that we have a policy on that, um, and actually it's interesting to note, um, we just, uh, I was working with um, Eric Levine and Luis Fernandez to actually get this um, together. So we have all the stuff we need to make sure that Andy knows and that Aaron Hammer, our, our regional coordinator here on the West Coast, knows um, that we had a good conference and that it was awesome and that um, the people who attended definitely do deserve something for it. So I think we're going to get make that happen. Yes, awesome. And in the coming weeks, I'm going to go behind the scenes and ask you guys what you did and how I can do it. <laughs> well, and we have part of that whole thing is having a report that we write up at the end of it that says, here's what we did. Um, this could have been better. Um, this could have, you know, this was awesome. Everybody should do this um, and, and really improve it for the next time for somebody else who's trying to organize something like that. So um, we'll look forward to that. So I think we're done messing with you. Um, however, I know Jose is on limited battery power and we'd love to have, uh, Kevin, have you stick around to talk with the rest of the show? Um, some of these are going to go really quickly. Some of them not so quickly. Um, but we'd always, uh, value your insight and of course your sense of humor. So, um, well, I know how much your listeners hate banter, but (laughs) actually, you know, I um, think I can stick around a little bit. So a few of the other things we have to talk about, um, we have rules questions, some from listeners, uh, some sort of the FAQs from Mirrored and Besieged. Uh, we also want to talk a little bit about um, feedback we've gotten from fans, um, also a little bit about a few new things that are going on in the judge community, um, and then also uh, one fun thing that I did, I guess, that uh, people could hopefully um, emulate, change, do something similar um, to improve them as judges. So, um, let's go with the DCIRules.org. Talk about that for a little bit. Actually, one of the things that I did see <laughs> that came across DCI Rules that I think is really interesting is that we've started posting, or folks have started posting, summaries of what has gone over the DCI judge mailing list. Right. For a long time, that's been private information, uh, or at least not something that's publicly discussed, but it sounds like we're getting official summaries of the rulings that come out in that. Um, and also, you know, you're getting in multiple languages too, uh, which is pretty awesome for all of our German listeners or, you know, uh, Spanish speaking listeners. They can actually get the judge list information in a publicly available source in their own language. Uh, I think it's really awesome. See, that's a big deal because. Like, for some reason, I'm still not on the uh, judge list. It's annoying. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, it's been like a year. Yeah, um, it's been yeah, a so year. We, I, I'm going to get right on that and try to fix that for you, Jose. Um, I thought, I thought I, yeah. it just magically happened. I really did. I thought, like, once you, you know, you get your stripes, uh, they, they usher you into this room and they give you the key. And, you know, suddenly you're on these email lists with all these cool uh rules questions and judge concerns. And you know what? For everyone else, it does work like that. <laughs> I yeah. just, I think, uh, I think there was some sort of a conspiracy. I'm a rabble rouser and I think they knew that. Right. There's, there's definitely a conspiracy. Jose, stay paranoid. 
Um, <laughs> so actually, yeah. So for those of you who are like Jose, who are judges and are not on the judge list, um, or for those of you who are interested in becoming a judge or are looking for a way to um, see, you know, what do judges talk about when they think nobody else can hear them? Um, this is what judge list is. Um, it's a big conversation um, among all the judges in the world about policy questions. Um, I think there's a giant discussion right now about hats there. Like, can you wear hats at tournaments? <laughs> should you wear hats at tournaments? Uh, should, should they be part of the tournament uniform? That sort of thing. Um, of course. But it's more exciting than that, people. It's right. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> it, might, it really is much it's more It's more exciting. than just hats. Well, for instance, um, there was a discussion that just happened um, this last month um, in the judge list about out-of-war sequencing and combat with manlands and shortcuts, where I think in the past I might have actually ruled that um, somebody's saying, okay, I'm ready for combat, and then they say, okay, I'll attack with you know Goblin 1, Goblin 2, and I'll activate my treetop village and attack with it. I would have ruled that as out-of-order sequencing. And you know, if somebody said, well, I want to have, have a response, okay, well, then we'll have to back up to the point where that would be appropriate. Um, you know, and then we'll, we'll go forward from there. Um, you know, if you, if you need to, but it's out of order sequencing and it's legal. Um, you know, that's much more clarified now where if you're using the shortcut to pass priority up until the, um, you know, beginning combat step, um, then we're actually going to, I'm sorry, not beginning combat, um, declare attackers, (laughs) Um, you know, if you're passing priority up to that point with a shortcut saying, hey, I'm ready for combat, um, then, you know, you're ready for combat. And you can't um, get to the point where you're like, okay, I'll activate my man land. You know, you don't have to have that option now. Um, and that's a, a clarification and policy that uh, I would have screwed up probably a month and a half, two months ago. I'll be honest. I'm not sure I agree with it, but Okay. <laughs> Right, and that's actually, you know, that's one of the things that the official list does, too, is it says, you know, well, you know, there, there's room for discussion in these rules matters, but when it, at the end of the day, you get an official answer, and this is the policy. Right. Um, now, it's not always the case. Um, you know, sometimes you have individual things where people are like, well, leave this up to your interpretation, but you should probably do something along these lines. Um and that's, you know, not an official, like, this is how it works, this is what you should do. But sometimes you do get a ruling from on high like that. You just have to go with it. Um, yep. And that's, you know, why we have consistent tournaments, or we at least aspire to. And that's one reason that I love these summaries, because when I, before I certified, I got a question wrong, and I said, how, you know, where's the answer to that? And somebody said, oh, well, it was posted on Judge List. Well, how was I supposed to know? Yeah, right. Now... You have somewhere you can find out if you need to. Yeah, so that's a very useful tool. Um, and, and those summaries, uh, dcirules.org. Um, one other cool thing is that they have JudgeCast linked on there. Um, we're on the right-hand side midway down. You know, and when, now we see the me, real reason. That's my favorite thing about uh, dcirules.org. I, just, I cracked up because I was going to say that JudgeCast is on there. That's my favorite <laughs> thing. But, uh, yeah. Well, that, that was my plant for you, Jose. I was hoping that you would see that and you'd be like, well, but my favorite I, thing is that. I know, and I totally cracked up. I, just, I <laughs> buried my face in, in you know, the computer and just laughed. 
<laughs> well, Does it you know, count as a shameless plug if everyone listening to this podcast already knows how to get JudgeCast? Um, yeah, I know, but that's why we have our Facebook page, see? Because <laughs> on Facebook, we can put up these shameless plugs, and then each individual can like like it or you know uh, uh, whatever these kids are doing nowadays on the social network. Um, and uh, that way, you know, information disseminates. It's great. See, that's ah. You can check us out on Facebook, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can find us on Facebook. In fact, um, earlier today, we were at 299 fans. Um, I went up on there just a few minutes ago, and we were up to 302. So I think announcing that you were part of our show today, Kevin, is what actually took us over that 300 line. So um, I think some some of your friends noticed, hey, he's going to be part of this. They looked us up. They said, hey, yeah, we like this. Okay. So they became fans. So uh, you were responsible for getting us awesome. over 300. It was, it was actually uh, Kevin's three other Facebook accounts. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Levin, some... Devin, and Revin Binswanger. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good. Are you guys related? <laughs> That's right. Devin Kinswanger. Um, good. <sighs> All right. So let's go from here. Um, oh, um, one other thing that would actually show up on DCIRules.org um, is the February Oracle update. So whenever Matt Tabak over that... Uh, uh, you know, Wizards actually decides to update the actual comprehensive rules. Um, those get posted over to DCIRules.org. Um, and one thing that basically there's nothing that changed in February, like a couple of really there's, minor things. Um, there's one thing that changed that I'm excited about. And what's that? Gremlins. That's right. Ooh. <laughs> Gremlins are now a creature type. They used to not be. Now they are. You can't get them wet. That's right. We'll feed them after midnight. That's right. All those late night drafts, you just can't have pizza anywhere near the infect decks now. Yep, it's true. I I have a suspicion that this is a plant for the next block. Or will it be like Mogwai in there too? And it's oh, transforming. Contraptions. <laughs> gremlins and contraptions. Creature gremlin rigor. <laughs> Yeah, so goblins and gremlins, uh, now gremlins is a real creature type, and Frexian gremlins got their creature type back. Um, so that was fantastic, but really not a whole lot of changes to the rules in February. I think that's a really nice thing to see uh, when you have a new rules manager come in. You know, Not a whole lot of changes right out the, out the back gate, um, so we know that it's not going to you know, shake things up. In fact, it's just going to make sure that the game's consistent, and that's what the rules manager should do. So there is the one change I keep looking for keeps failing to appear. Um, if you have a creature, say troll ascetic or run the last troll, how do you describe his shroud ability? Yes, the the troll shroud is just a uh, a colloquialism. It's not yeah. it's not actually a thing. Uh, outgoing rules manager Mark Gottlieb actually refused to use the word troll shroud even in conversation. <laughs> So now I have taken it as a personal challenge to try and um, not just get a rules manager to say it, but to make it the official term. I'm hoping that I can borrow your listeners to, to aid me in creating a groundswell for this change. I'll, I'll tell you, I would love to pull this because I'm of the opposite camp. I, I like Troll Shroud as a colloquialism, and I think the, the, the ability needs a name. It's pretty close to, to Shroud, uh, so that Shroud in there may, may make sense. 
But I think as a name, Troll Shroud is kind of weird. You kind of limit it to trolls when you put it on. Can you imagine a creature that is not a troll with Troll Shroud? You'd be like, what is this Troll Shroud thing? Right, you know, so I, I think it needs another name. Like uh, fear or flanking, I see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think it needs that. But there's no other name. Nobody's come up with anything witty, myself included. So uh, <laughs> I would love to uh, just get a different name for it. Okay, well, I, I can get so on that. So what, what do the listeners think? Do they like uh, Trollstroud or do they have a better suggestion? Well, we'll take Please the suggestions. Please yeah, That's right. Tell yeah, maybe the listeners cast. can find a, a better name. Absolutely. So if you have a better name for Troll Shroud, Hello. Um, send it to judgecast at gmail.com. And uh, we'll actually you know, put your suggestions out on the air as long as they're you know, family friendly. Um, yeah. We'll, we'll <laughs> I can't imagine out. how that would not be family friendly, but I have been surprised before by our listeners. Well, I can imagine somebody <laughs> like Mr. T. Shroud, like, I pity the food that tried to, try to target me. <laughs> like, <laughs> I pity a fool who tried to target me. That's I right. would support that. <laughs> I kind of, you know, yeah, I kind of like that. Mr. T. Shroud. Right. And it's kind of like Troll Shroud. Starts with a T, you know, um, maybe not. Okay. <laughs> so let's, um, let's answer some rules questions. How's that sound? That sounds great. 5% Let's left. do it. Okay. Um, so I'm going to go into our listener inbox here. First question comes from Kenneth. Um, Kenneth doesn't tell us where he's from. Um, Kenneth from Lake Wobegon? Where all the... What is nice. It? All, nice. All, I, all I appreciate that illusion. That's right. Where all the kids are above average. Um, so <laughs> uh, Ken has this question. Suppose you have a situation where a 5-5 green creature with trample is attacking and being blocked by a 2-2 creature with protection <laughs> from green. Um, so because the protection prevents any damage the trampler would deal, would any leftover power make it over through to damage the player? Um, and he's trying to figure this out because he read the comprehensive rulebook, and that part of it, you know, it talks about trample damage uh, to the first blocking creature, and after lethal damage has been dealt, it any remaining damage goes on to the next creature or the defending player, but since lethal damage can't be dealt to the protecting uh, creature, um, basically he says, well, can any damage go through? So I think there's a misconception here. Um, Kevin, uh, Jose, do you want to take this on? So Trample doesn't actually care about how much damage is dealt. It asks for something specific that the listener wrote in on. He used the right for uh, he, Kenneth, he, Use the right phrase, lethal damage. Um, and lethal damage sounds like it means enough damage to kill the creature, and it sort of does. But it just cares about enough damage to equal the creature's toughness minus any damage that's already been marked on. Right. So, if I have... Yeah, I only need to deal damage equal to whatever the toughness of the creature is, and if the damage isn't dealt because of something that changes the way the damage applies, like protection, I dealt lethal damage. I don't care that the creature didn't get a lethal end. Right. Yeah, th- th- this, this is sort of term, lethal damage, can be a little bit confusing when you're talking about trample. Um, because when we think lethal damage, we think, oh, lethal means it's dead. And what, really what lethal means is 
you know, equal to its toughness, or in the case of Death Touch, just at least one. Um, and that's one of those weird things that you know, um, the actual rule that you're looking for is um, it's actually in the rulebook, seven hundred two point one seven B, and basically it just means that you need to assign that lethal damage assignment to those creatures that are in the way that are blocking the tr- creature with trample. And then anything that you haven't assigned left over can go over to the defending player or the planeswalker that's being attacked. Um, and it's not really caring about what happens to the damage. You're absolutely right, Kevin. That's exactly the right way to describe it. So, okay. Um, any other things you, you have on this one, Jose? Uh, no, that's, that sounds pretty good. Um, yep. Okay. Um, let's go on to our next question. And hey, it deals with trample also. <laughs> um, let's see. Now, this one comes from Eric, and Eric is from Pennsylvania. So where there would be a Pro Tour and a Grand Prix later on this year. So um, he has a 5-5 indestructible creature, and it's been dealt 10 damage before combat. And then it blocks a 5-5 during combat. He wants to know, would any of the combat damage be blocked due to it being already lethal damage? Um, so that's that's his question. Ooh, what a great question. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome. That's a good one. Good uh, on the tails of um, what Kevin just mentioned. Right. <laughs> so let's, let's attack this a little bit here. Um, let's actually set up a scenario where we can deal with a little bit in, in more detail with actual creatures. So let's say, um, say Kevin, you have four dark steel mirror on the battlefield. Um, and let's see, I just decided that uh, my Chandra Nalar is going to go off and deal 10 damage to each of them. Okay? Okay, so, this seems bad for me. <laughs> right. It's about to be terrible for you. <laughs> However, um, you, have, you have all four of your dark steel mirror, and you also have two tempered steel out. So they're four or five creatures. And okay. All right. Ten. All right. This is getting better. Okay. So I've dealt 10 damage to each of them, though. Um, and now I go to combat. And I decide, well, before we actually get to combat here, let's say I'm going to play Overrun. Okay. So I've got Overrun for all my creatures. And all my creatures happen to just be four Eldrazi spawn tokens. So he didn't actually Overrun now. He, did, he used Garuk because Garuk and uh, Chandra are, you know, dating and you came across them somehow and interrupted them and you're there with your dark steel mirror you didn't know they were they were off in the woods by uh together they were so suddenly chandra goes uh haywire uh deals 10 damage to all this stuff and then guru goes go my little eldrazis become big so i played mana interruptus (laughs) (laughs) right what you've actually done is you've come across Chandra and Garuk going ultimate on each other. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, these Eldrazi spawn turn into three fours with trample, and they're going up against um, four, four or five indestructible creatures that have ten damage marked on them. How much damage are you going to take when I attack you? How many guys do you have again? I have to do math. You've got four guys. <laughs> I've got four guys. 
Okay, so you have these four three fours, and I have these four four five indestructibles that are almost very very dead. Well, they've had ten damage marked on them. Right. So I'm going to be taking uh, I I'm going to be taking a lot of damage. I said my my mirrors will probably live through combat, but it doesn't look like I will. Right. You'll be taking twelve damage. Um, because the trample is going to go through because these mirror already have what the game considers lethal damage assigned to them or marked on them. Yep, but indestructibility uh, replaces their destruction with not destruction. Right. Well, actually, it just says you know they they can't be yep. destroyed. So the game right. sees them there and says, "Okay, well, you're still around. Good for you." Um, of course, if they lose their destructibility later on in the game or later on in the turn, rather, um, then they'll actually be destroyed. But that's not probably not going to happen. Um, that's, you know, unless you're playing legacy somehow and you've got humility out, but we're not going to worry about humility right now. Right. Right. So great. So that's how trample works in that situation. Um, one more listener's question down. I think we had a question here from somebody who said they were from a really far away place. Let me see here. Ah, yes. This question here comes from Austin and Austin is not actually from where you're, you're from. Oh. He's not from Austin. <laughs> Austin's the name of the guy asking the question. However, Austin is from Djibouti. No way. That's what he says. I'm going to believe him. I mean, who's not going to believe somebody when they say they're from Djibouti? I mean, who would actually want to be from Djibouti? Okay, you know, all no listeners, comment. All of our listeners in Djibouti are going to, you know, call in and complain, but... Um, I, you know, I will take your side. I think it might be cool to live there. You'd, yeah. you'd get a great introductions at parties like this one. <laughs> I think it's just, it's really bad to tell somebody I'm from Djibouti. Okay. So, also, excuse me? I'm going to Djibouti. do everything I can to sucker, uh, to, to suck up to your audience. Of course, of course, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so Austin from Djibouti says, um, <clears throat> so he actually has a question about Mere Welder. And Mere Welder's new card from Mirrored and Besieged, um, and Mere Welder has on it the ability that says, imprint, uh, tap, exile, target artifact card from a graveyard. Mere Welder has all activated abilities of all cards exiled with it. So he wants to know, what happens if you exile an equipment? If I understand it correctly, the equip cost is an activated ability, so could you equip the welder without any benefit to another creature? Uh no. <laughs> well, Kevin. <laughs> I okay. I say no well, because well, 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 uh, well, why not? creatures cannot equip. Okay, so a creature can't be attached to another creature is what you're saying, Jose? Yeah. Yes, that is what I'm saying. Okay. Is he um, allowed, would you say he's allowed to activate the equip cost? Or to activate I, the equip ability? Yes, I do say that. Okay, okay. so he could, he could, if he needed a mana sink for some reason, somebody reinstituted yeah, mana burn. I'm, I'm sorry, let me, let me clarify. Uh, can he activate the equip? Yes. Can he actually equip the welder to something? No. Okay. Um, that's the answer that I would give, too. Um, because it's the right answer. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> and we know Sean never gives wrong answers. No, no, no. I've done that in the past. That's that's not the case. In this case, I'm correct, though. Um, that, now, there's you know, some conceivable reason that you might want to do it. Uh, for instance, if I have Hirobi Death's Whale out, it'd be great to be able to, well, kill my own creatures, I guess, with the equip. No, that's a bad idea. 
Um, <laughs> well, if you and, desperately uh, need to sacrifice an artifact to Piston Sledge. Sure, there we go. Yeah. Yeah, you could do that. Yeah. Um, sure. I, I, actually, sure. I, I want to sacrifice an artifact so that um, somebody can't uh, you know, take it. Then I would want to imprint Piston Sledge real quickly and then sacrifice it somehow to uh, to equip the Mirror Welder to something. Of course, it, the game would try to do that and say, oh, can't do that. Okay, so nothing happens. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. Um, now, there's another question that comes up frequently within Mirror Welder here. Um, and that is uh, when multiple cards that exile other cards get imprinted on Mirror Welder. Um, and I think we should probably talk about this a little bit. <clears throat> so we have this question. I have a Mirror Welder. I exile a Molten Tail Master Core with it. I have all of Molten Tail Master Core's abilities. Say I use the one that exiles a creature card in a graveyard, and that creature card also happens to be an artifact. What if I use that? Do I now have those activated abilities on my um, Mirror Welder? Um, so the short answer would be no, and the long answer would be no, and it wouldn't matter whether it's an artifact or not. Right. <laughs> well, I think um, the only way that somebody would have this misconception is if that was an artifact creature right. that got taken out. But um, oh, when, So Mirror Welder has a linked ability. Mm-hmm. And this is a set of one or more of uh, two or more abilities on a card where you say exile something, and then another card that cares about things exiled by that first stability. Right. And yeah. we've added the they've added this rule that says those abilities are linked and they only work with each other. So you can't exile something with Molten Tail Masticor and then suddenly get the abilities on it with Mere Welder. Right. And that's something else that's been around actually for a little bit longer than just recently, though they made it explicit a little bit more more recently. Um, the one that comes to mind is uh, Necrotic Ooze, for instance. Um, that's another one that gains a bunch of activated abilities, and you know you you do need to be aware of linked abilities that you can't sort of um, you can't sort of cross the streams. In those, right. To to try and get you know something imprinted to do something else crazy. So no tapping your mill welder for blue mana, thinking that it's somehow a chrome mox. For those of you out there that like Judge Breakers, imprint used to not work this way. Right. And you could do some very, very, very crazy things if you could somehow turn a panoptic mirror into an isochron scepter. Thankfully, that no longer is a concern. Right. So good. Okay, um, that's mirror welder. Um, thank you, Austin from Djibouti. Um, let's go on to, let's see, Dale. Dale has a quick question. Dale, actually, his name in this is Dale Bob. Um, okay, so Dale Bob. From? Um, I, you know, he doesn't say. Um, <laughs> normally when we have nobody saying where they're from, uh, where would you like this person to be from? Um, you know what, let's put this person from Norway. Norway. Oh, great! To show them that not all Vikings are bad. Well, this is a this is a bad question. No, it's actually not. Okay, <laughs> maybe no. not. Maybe we can move this person. No, um, actually, not all Vikings are bad. I, I will agree with you there, even if you're at war with them. Um, <clears throat> also, do you now have to read the question in a Norse accent? <laughs> um, how about this? Um, at the end of every <laughs> sentence, I'll just add a little bit of my Nor- Norwegian flavor to this, okay? So, Deal. 
Um, from Dale. Hi, all. Hurdy, hurdy, hurdy. My friend and I have been playing for a long time together. Hurdy, hurdy, hurdy. <laughs> and we are still confused how this works. Hurdy, hurdy. Could you please set us straight on this interaction? Hurdy, 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 hurdy. He's playing elves. Yeah, I know. Hurdy, hurdy, hurdy. He has just put three elves into play and taps his two Orin Reef, or Orin Vast Reef, Orin, Orin Reef Land thing. Yeah, hurdy. Orin Reef of the Vast Wood. There we go. Putting two plus one plus one counters on each elf. Uh, my board has some creatures on it. Um, what he wants to know is, in my turn, I cast Contagion Engine and put minus one minus one counters on his elves and then pay four to double proliferate. What happens now? Hurdy, 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 hurdy. I'm getting a little confused here. Do all of his elves die, or are they given plus one, plus one counters? Uh, so, also, um, this is also going to solve the problem we're having with his white Ajani deck. So, thank you in advance. Hurdy, 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 hurdy. Okay. Um, great. So, anybody? I've never that? heard an, a, uh, an accent from that part of the world, but I, I think you've got it spot on. Oh, I think I've got this. Oh, you know what? Actually, that's. I'm sorry. Everybody from Norway, I'm sorry. I was impersonating the Swedish chef, not the Norwegian chef. My apologies. So I guess it's not going to end up well for our listener, for the guy that wrote in. Right. Um, so Wizards of the Coast has this rule in, in when they design sets that there's only one type of counter per set. We either get minus one, minus one counters, or plus one, plus one counters. Um. Because it's really confusing to have minus one, minus one counters and plus one, plus one counters on the same creature. Um, so now, when they encounter each other up in the wild, when they encounter each other in the wild on the same creature, they blow each other up. Right. It's like antimatter um, and matter that and, kind of annihilate each other. Yes. So, if you've got two minus one, minus one counters and three plus one, plus one counters... The, the minus one, minus one counters will cancel out, and it'll be left with just the one plus one, plus one counter. Right. And so it's sort of like, um, it's also important to note that this is a state-based action. So it's something that happens before either play would receive priority. It, it's one of those things, long list of things, including like losing the game, or you know, destroyed creatures going to the, or, uh, creatures with zero toughness going to the graveyard, that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, it's a right. state-based action. So it's not something you can necessarily you know, respond to. You can't say, well, you know, I'll put my Contagion Engine out here, and then I'll get the minus one, minus one counters. Oh, and before they go away here, I'm going to proliferate and just double the minus one, minus one counters twice here. That's not going to work. Right. He can add more plus one, plus one counters if he likes. Right. I don't think he wants to do that. Let's go on to our next question. Sound good? Sure. Oh, wow. We had one question come in while we were actually recording. Oh, that's exciting. So yeah. if we've done any preparatory work, we can't do it for this question. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so... We're, we're uh, going off script here. And yeah, he, this is Matt from Rollywood. Um, Rollywood. That sounds like I made a... Okay, well, here we go. <laughs> Dear Judge Casters, a dilemma for your consideration. I plan to cast an instant that will become less mana-intensive after something else goes on the stack, and resolves. What does the first instant cost? So it sounds like he's talking about traps here. 
So I want to cast Rune Flare Trap on the cheap. Let's say I have something in play that allows me to cast uh, Molten Psyche as an instant. So he's got, you know, Vidalcan Orrery or something. Um, it's my turn. I have Metalcraft and three untapped mountains and one untapped island. My opponent has five cards in hand and it's tapped out. Can I put Rune Flare Trap on the stack and then, in response, cast an instant speed Molten Psyche? I want the Molten Psyche to resolve, causing the opponent to draw cards, take damage, and finally allow me to cast Rune Flare Trap for its bargain basement price. But my instincts tell me I probably have to tap for the converted mana cost to put Rune Flare Trap on the stack in the first place, since uh, its if condition hasn't been fulfilled at the time I'm announcing it. Is this correct, or how does this all play out? Oh, I see. What he, because he can't cast the Rune Flare Trap after the Molten Psyche because it would get shuffled into his library. Right. He wants it in his. He, he has it in his hand now. He's got it with the Molten Psyche, and he needs in order to pay the cheap cost for the Rune Flare Trap. He would have to, you know, somehow get his opponent to draw more cards. Well, Molten Psyche will do that, but in that case, he doesn't have the Rune Flare Trap in his hand to use. So. That's his dilemma here. He wants to see if this is a way that he's found to, to work around it where he puts you know, Rune Flare Trap out there on the stack without paying for it and then says, okay, well, now that you've drawn some cards, I can only pay this cost for it instead. Um, sounds a little awkward to me, though, doesn't it? Yeah, the, the guy seems to realize it's probably not going to work, but he's asking us, hey, just in case. Right. Uh, and I'm sorry to tell you, in this case, your intuition is correct. Right, it's not going to work. You, you you don't get to half cast spells. Yeah. You have to go through all the steps of casting it. One of which is inclu- is paying all the costs, um, and those costs are determined. You know when you actually decide, hey, I'm I'm casting this spell. It's one of the first steps, actually, in terms of determining what the costs are. It's one of the first steps of actually casting a spell. Um, if you want all the steps of casting a spell, I suggest you go back and listen to our episode number sixteen. Um, which was called Slowest Bolt Ever, um, where we actually go through all the steps of casting a spell. Um, it takes like 20 minutes to cast this damn lightning bolt, um, but people seem to like it. It's actually, I think, the one episode that's been downloaded most of all of ours. Um, so hopefully you can listen to that. And I actually get it. started listening to that episode when it was released, and I'm still trying <laughs> to cast the lightning bolt. <laughs> that's great. Um, hopefully someday you'll get there. Um, oh, there's one other question he has in here. He sort of sent a follow-up email also. So, um, he also wants to know, um, let's see. Uh, he says, can you cast go for the throat targeting an artifact creature just to dump a card from your hand? Um, no. So he wants to be able to basically, when you cast a spell, you need to have legal targets for it. Um, you can't just decide, hey, I need this spell to fizzle, so I'll just toss it and get it out of my hand and play it this way with an illegal target. You should have a legal target for it. Right. Um, maybe maybe it works out, fortunately, for the player. And another time, if he accidentally tries to cast it and can't, he doesn't have to throw the spell away like some players think you have to. Right. It just, we pretend it never happened. Right, we we have to reverse the actions um, of casting it because it was an illegal action. Um, now, it's not the same as rewinding a game rule violation in terms of the IPG. It's it's basically there are other situations where you can actually rewind a game rule violation where yeah. we're not just talking about illegal cast, casting a spell. 
Um, but it's it's a sort of similar feel where you can rewind, uh, sort of take a couple of steps back, say, okay, sorry, that was wrong. Um, don't do that. That spells back in your hand. And, uh, you know, we'll untap those lands because you couldn't have tapped them to pay for this. Um, in fact, we had this come up at the San Jose Open um, where somebody actually committed outside assistance. Um, Oops. I think, yeah, it was an awkward situation. Um, their opponent cast Emrakul. And um, so play, player A casts Emrakul. Player B says, oh, Mana Leak, without even thinking about, you know, you know, Emrakul <laughs> can't be countered, can't be whatever. Um, and two spectators immediately jump in and say, no, 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 Emrakul can't be countered. And the player says, oh, you're right. Okay. So he untaps his two lands and puts Mana Leak back in his hand. Um, which is not right. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, <laughs> yeah. The difference is that Imrakul is a legal target for Mana Leak. Right, you can you can target it with Mana Leak. <laughs> Mana Leak just isn't going to counter it. Um, so that whole thing of you know interrupting and telling a player, hey, stop doing that, um, you can go that far, but you can't say, you know, what's wrong with the game, you can't tell them more information about what's going on. Just stop the game, call a judge, we'll come over and we'll fix it. And if something's wrong, we'll fix it. If something's not wrong, you won't have screwed it up. I'm not convinced this situation is outside assistance, but it's very messy. Right. So let's see. I'm actually I'm actually speaking of go for the throat. I'm lucky enough, you all can be jealous, to be on the Magic Online beta for Mariner and Besieged. And I've actually done this once because... I didn't read my own cards well enough, and you try to cast Go for the Throat, and if you've used Magic Online, it sort of lights up the things you can target and dims the things you can't target. And I'm sitting there trying to click on the artifact, and it just doesn't work. And eventually you give up and hit cancel, and the spell comes back to your hand. Gotcha. Nice. Okay, so we've, we've answered all those rules questions that we've got from listeners. There's one more, though. Um, this happened to me at the pre-release. Can you imagine... Um, having a seven-level judge, two-headed giant team. Uh, they're either going to win out or lose terribly. <laughs> right. Well, with Toby and me, uh, Toby Elliott, a level five judge from Palo Alto, um, he and I were two-headed giant team for the pre-release. And we screwed up a ruling uh, in one of our own matches, of course. <laughs> we weren't actually making a ruling. But um, we actually scooped... Uh, our first round, um, a turn early because of this. So if you're playing two-headed giant with mirrored and besieged cards, um, or actually this is the scars mirrored and card, so basically two-headed giant anytime soon, um, one thing you should realize is that Icarat is not really, really, really better than it is in a normal, you know, game or <laughs> anything else. <laughs> now, Kevin, I think you're laughing here because you can see what happened. Um, why don't you just take a stab at what might have happened here? So so I'm looking at Icarats, and it has this triggered ability that says when Icarats enters the battlefield, each player gets a poison counter. Right. And if you're used to look, if you're used to uh, two at a giant, players share a life total. And so if this ability dealt two damage to each player, the team would take four damage. Right. And so the first three times I read this card... I mentally assumed the team would get two poison counters. 
But you don't share poison. Right. The team does get two poison <laughs> counters. It's just one per player. And the game only cares about you losing when a single player has ten counters. So it really doesn't change by two. It changes by one for the purposes of losing. Right. So Toby and I missed this. <laughs> um, and you know, now, <laughs> um, you know, hopefully you won't miss it either. Um but we've relied on Peter Manning, a level two judge, you know, from Sacramento. He was judging the PT, uh, judging the pre-release. Um, he came in and said, "Hey, um, you guys scooped a little early there. Uh, what's going on?" <laughs> and uh, sort of cleared that up for us. So, um, anyway, that's yeah. It's it's always easier when you're watching the match than when you're playing it. Um, I. The, the weekend that I tested for level three and did very well on my rules exam, I proceeded to get five things wrong in the first game of the draft I played. <laughs> and my opponent, Lems, who was on my panel, I imagine could only stare at me in disgust. <laughs> right. You're sitting across from a level four judge that just tested you on your panel, and he says, oh, wow. But really? Because <laughs> you got the exam just fine, you know? The creature, um, the creature that says can't block, can't block, oh, things really? like that. Okay, nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> ah, well, you know, it's it's for things like this that um, I've actually built a, an EDH deck, and something else I wanted to talk about today. Um, I built an EDH deck um, that is actually sort of a resurrection of something that Gavin Duggan did, or D- Gavin Duggan, sorry, um, Gavin Duggan did this, you know, years ago. Uh, he wrote basically a deck list and called it the Judge Breaker, and took this to Pro Tours and other places like that, major events, to play in sort of the casual, you know, middle-of-the-night EDH that happens at these big events. Um, and it's an Esper deck. It used used uh, Urtai the Corrupted as its general. And um, basically, the whole idea is to get the worst, most complicated rules interactions possible and use it to test judges and say... You know, okay, I've got, um, you know, used to be Opalescence, Humility, and some other card were, you know, all uh, Microsoft Lattice and March of the Machines. You know, have all of those in play, what <laughs> happens? Um, and so that's the idea with this, is that we have um, a list of cards that make up an actually, you know, semi-useful, you know, commander deck. Um, and instead, you're actually teaching the rules um, and helping people become better judges, know the layers, they get to know about timestamps in some cases. Um, you know, you get to really bring in some interesting rules interactions. Um, all the all the rules interactions you see on practice tests and never really see in a game. Right, right, and you actually get a chance to actually live through them. Um, I think one thing that happened in, you know, one of the most awkward interactions that came up, I think, was you know, a, an EDH game with like six players. And somebody decided they'd play Time Sifter, which changes who takes the next turn based on the top cards <laughs> with mana cost. And then somebody else decided, oh, that's a great thing. I'll use Copy Artifact and copy the Time Sifter. And so now you have two different effects who are deciding who takes the next turn. Um, and the question becomes, you know, what do you do? And it's a, you know, a wonky, wonky interaction. Um, because it's a multiplayer game, you're probably not going to run into something like that on an actual exam, but uh, basically, you know, you actually end up with one time sifter deciding who actually takes the turn, 
and then this additional time sifter sort of getting up a list of extra turns that are going to happen once the first time sifter somehow gets destroyed. And then at the end of it, you have to remember whose actual next turn is next once you play Creeping Corrosion and destroy both time sifters. <laughs> right. You have to figure out, okay, we have all these extra turns. When did all this mayhem start? You know, it's probably pretty easy because it's, you know, the person who was right after that person who cast the first time sifter or, you know, something like that. But it's ridiculous. I actually had a great judge breaker moment um, at an EDH game recently, uh, a six player EDH game. Um, Tasha, uh, the girlfriend of Ricky, who we've met, who we've mentioned a few times on the air, had played Hive Mind. <laughs> I had the next turn, and I was looking at my favorite, one of my favorite cards at EDH, and I out, said out loud to the table, "I'm not going to cast this; it'll be too complicated." And Toby Elliott looks over at me and he says, "What is it?" And I say, "Well, it's Warp World, but it'll be too much of a mess." And he grins and he shows me his copy and he says, "If you don't cast it, I will." <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, stacking the triggers properly for six players when all of the permanents enter the battle simultaneously six times required the eight or ten levels of judge or whoever we had conscious at that game at the moment. Right. Wow. That's awesome. So you, you actually had six copies of Warp World happening. Wow. That's ridiculous. And of so, we were we were activating instants in the meantime. We had a we had a die in the middle of the table that had a number of copies of Warp World. <laughs> and one of the players at our table was sick of these shenanigans and tried to counter it. Um, <laughs> um, so everybody got a copy of Counterspell. I regret to admit we forgot that everybody got the copy of Counterspell. Oh. Uh, but, but I happened to flip over mischievous Quainar. And because your lands into the battlefield untapped off of Warp World, I got to make a few extra counters, uh, copies of Warp World to compensate. Oh my god. Okay, that's awesome. <laughs> wow. You know, whenever you get something like that with a multiplayer game, it's it's really is awesome. Um, Toby and I, in the pre-release for Mirror to Misage here, we opened a foil uh, knowledge pool. So that is in the Judge Breaker deck that I built. Um, <laughs> It's you know probably the most rules intensive card of the new set. Um, so actually, you know what I did with this deck is I put it up on deckbox.org, and it's I actually took my whole collection, put it up there um, in sort of a digital catalog of it. Um, and this way, I can sort of you know build a deck pretty quickly on the fly. Say you know modify a few things, take a few sample hands, do all that sort of tweaking, and then decide okay, I'll actually go root through my collection and build this. Um, so I was able to do that with the Judge Breaker for you know black, white, and blue. Um, but it was pointed out to me, and actually you pointed it out here also with Warp World, there are some really interesting Judge-related cards that exist in red and green. You know, I mean, there's uh, there's uh, Life and Limb, for instance. That's a great one. Um, there are things that you know allow extra land drops that that you don't normally get. Um, there are things that allow for you know, power and toughness setting, power and toughness changing, right? Um, all sorts of other layers and interactions. Um, you know, a lot of damage prevention stuff. A lot of wonky things happen when you can't prevent damage. Um, you know, red is really good at doing that. Um, so there's really some great interactions to be had in red and green. So what I'd like to do is actually make a contest, and that is um, for uh, any of our listeners who 
make a red green judge breaker deck. Um, they can just share the list with us either via email or on deckbox.org or Facebook or some other means. Um, make up a red green judge breaker deck and it needs to really focus on actually messing with the rules, uh, testing those rules interactions that are going to be complex and difficult to deal with um, and focus it on red and green. If you need to splash another color, um, yeah, it's okay. Uh, it might affect how you're judged, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> create a red green judge breaker commander deck, submit that to us and um, I will pick a card from it and get do what I can to get you a foil copy of that card. And of course, it's not going to just be some random lightning bolt. It'll be something that's interesting. Um, you know, I've got a foil vicious shadows. If you want to add that to your deck, I've got one here, and I will send it your way as a, as a thank you for building this deck and a step in the right direction. Okay. So, um, again, red green judge breaker deck. Um, you know, make it commander deck. Um, and send us your list. Um, basically, it'd be great to have the other half of the color pile, color pie, actually building a deck like that. We could actually have a match of the Judge Breaker decks and <laughs> just see what happens. <laughs> so the goal is to create a deck that folks don't know how to play. Well, no, it's actually so that they can, you know, they create a deck that will help them learn the rules. I mean, that's really what this judge, you know, judge breaker is sort of a weird term for it. It's not actually right. trying to discourage people. It's actually trying to teach them. So maybe we should call it judge teacher instead of judge breaker. Um, but the idea is that these rules interactions that don't come up very often have a chance to come to the fore and you have a chance to learn more about the rules. Um, and, you know, the whole reason that corner cases are so interesting is that they, they test a wide range of knowledge, but at some point there are pieces of them that apply to more simple interactions that you're going to see on a more common basis. And if you understand the corners, you're able to sort of draw those out and say, okay, well, in this case, we don't have these three elements, so it actually works this way. And it's much easier to sort of figure those things out. So if you can handle Warp World in a giant eight-player game, you can handle it just fine with two players at Friday Night Magic. Oh, easily. Yeah, absolutely. Or an imaginary Friday Night Magic where it's still legal. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, and, I, mean I will admit, um, you know, at, uh, at Worlds in Japan, <laughs> late night, um, Bill Stark was in the hotel lobby, um, you know, doing some random drafting with, you know, some of the other luminaries of Magic, you know, Brian David Marshall, Sam Black, those, those people. Um, sitting around in the hotel lobby with some of the judges, and he sort of leans over and says, you guys in all your EDH decks, you know what this really is? It's just porn for judges. That's really all EDH is. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not going to say he's wrong. Um, you know, I mean, to some extent, it really is awesome to see, you know, all these rules interactions. But at the same time, there's actually a lot more to it than just judge porn. So, yeah. Um, anyway, that's that's... So, Judge Breaker, if you would like to build a red-green Judge Breaker list, please send it our way. Um, and, of course, um, I have a couple sort of incidental plugs here for deckbox.org. They're totally free, you know, chill service. Um, and it was really nice to be able to put my whole catalog of collection up there. Um, something that actually made me realize, ooh, I should probably get this insured at some point. Um, <laughs> I think this contest is really cool because Knowledge Pool joins a long list of red cards um, mm -hmm. that I think seem like great casual cards, If you, but you just need a judge to figure out how they work. 
<laughs> right. Most are red. Cards like Eye of the Storm or uh, I'll exclude the red the, the red cards on air because I want to give folks a chance to discover them. But there are a lot of enchantments that cause chaos. Yeah, enchantments are actually a great thing to look at first. Um, and there's also I, I would suggest if you're starting your searches for something like this, um, check you know enchantments, especially the red ones, especially ones with the word random in their title you know, or in their in, their, in the rules <laughs> text. Um, that's usually yeah, or or chaos in the title, <laughs> right? Chaos, you know, aether and chaos are just two things that you can definitely count on being a rules issue. Um, wanted to just uh, talk about a little bit of feedback we've got from fans. Um, so you know you haven't been on a host for us, you know, in past episodes, but you've clearly been a listener from time to time. Um, so I wanted to actually thank you, Kevin, and thank all of our other listeners because we got some our some numbers back from Chris Otwell over at MTG cast. And he was able to tell us uh, how many listeners we had uh, for each of our episodes, how many unique downloads he, we had. Um, and it's amazing. I was really just blown away when I saw this. Uh, we had more than 2000 downloads for a single episode uh, with the uh, slowest bolt ever in episode 16. Uh, that's also the most, ep- most downloads we've had for any of our episodes. Um, but some of those have been, you know, I think averaging around thirteen or fourteen hundred downloads, which means that we're getting out to a lot of people, um, and it really is awesome to hear. Um, so, you know, when we first started this, you know, we didn't really know what would come of it, um, but really is awesome <laughs> to have that many people listening. Again, for the longest time, that was also just one of two folks that were hosting us. Um, now they're the main one, but again, it's awesome, really awesome, um, really. I, I mean. I can't express to our listeners how thankful I am to get um, that kind of feedback and knowing that, that we get to the, that many ears, that many players, that many judges, um, to know that they listen. I really appreciate that. If you're a listener, you should probably go up to Sean or Jose at an event and we'll give you a hug. Um, <laughs> I, maybe. I, I can't say I'm going to drop everything, and if I'm the hedge of the PTQ... <laughs> Um, head judging PTQ and hugging players is probably a, an awkward space there. Um, <laughs> but no, I, 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 uh, I sincerely do appreciate it. Um, there's also one thing that happened earlier, uh, just a couple weeks ago or maybe a week ago, um, where we got an email, um, or rather a, a picture posted to our Facebook group uh, from uh, a very creative listener. <laughs> Um, and Kevin, I don't know if you're on Facebook right now or if you can get on there, but um, maybe you've seen this, maybe you haven't yet. Uh, one of our fans sent us a photo, and this photo is um, Ricky's favorite Pokemon card with his face actually in the card. <laughs> so in our last episode, episode 25, um, Ricky mentioned that uh, Sunkern is sort of his avatar as far as Pokemon cards go because it's a plant card and he likes plants. Um, and it, its abilities are minor errand running, which is something that Ricky does well, apparently. Um, and its attack is something called Rollout, which is uh, a thing that he likes because he's some sort of Transformers nerd. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> basically, Sunkern with Ricky's face on it is now up on the judge cast page at Facebook. So if you go there, check out, uh, that, uh, and again, I wanted to thank 
the listener <laughs> that submitted that to us. Um, really fantastic. Um, his name is um, <clears throat> Yars Cristobal. So, uh, Yars, thank you very much for that um, really interesting submission. Uh, finally, see if I can... And finally, um, a couple episodes ago, I sort of proposed a fix for um, a deck deckless problem fix. Um, basically, when people don't get to play with the cards that they think they should or that they intended to play, um, instead they get stuck with either playing basic lands or the wrong card that somehow got written down on their on their deck list, um, where they clearly can't pl- play it. For instance, uh, a Johnny Vengeance in an all-white deck. Um, you know, we say, well, you can either play with the Johnny Von- Vengeance in the sideboard like that, or in the main deck like that, or you can play with some basic planes. Um, and saying, well, you know, let's let's have some other way of fixing that. Um, you know. People hated the proposed <laughs> modification that I that I had out there, um, and I I don't want to actually tie mine necessarily to what Claire Dupre might work out or try to you know use uh, or change um, because whatever she wants to do in the mod to this um, is something that I'll let her propose the actual policy of that. Um, mine clearly was not something that people liked, but of course mine is not necessarily hers. So please, uh, when, if, and when she ever makes a proposal to change that, don't just take, uh, how people reacted to mine for it as the, the, you know, well, that's an important to. part of the process is that policy changes don't just happen. They get discussed by a lot of people. Right. And Toby Elliott and, and the folks don't, maybe they don't put them out on a podcast on the internet, but they go through all this discussion I I actually tried, I was absolutely convinced I had a fix for something that I saw as a flaw in the IPG. I convinced a lot of people. I was so confident I was right. I sent my email to Toby. I had a discussion with him, and he said, no, no, you're totally misunderstanding philosophy. It's fine as is. And he explained it to me. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, you're totally right. <laughs> Toby has a way of doing that. Um, so I am sort of 0 for 2 in IPG changes I've proposed. Well, so what were the two changes, though? I'm curious to, to know what, what um, the two that you proposed are. Insufficient randomization turned insufficient shuffling. And I made a similar suggestion, but for the wrong reasons. Um, mm. Because insufficient randomization only meant when you shuffled your deck to present, and now insufficient shuffling is any time you need to change the order of your decks. Right. So I said, let's change the name to represent that. And he changed the name, downgraded the penalty, and made it apply to more things. Um, and I propose, well, I proposed the change from, I proposed a change to marked cards back when there were two marked cards in fractions. Um, and that change sort of happened, but not in a way I anticipated, which either goes to show that Toby is great at listening to people, uh, and improving on their suggestions or the people that work on this stuff are really good at what they do and really good at anticipating the problems that other people see. Hmm. I think it's a little uh, bit of both probably. Yeah. Um, I don't think any change happens really in a vacuum. And I think, you know, if, that, if you've made a suggestion, chances are it influences it somehow. I mean, it's just, yeah. you know, the way that I think from my understanding of how the IPG works is that it definitely is a collaborative process within the community um, where the actual, you know, the actual writing of it only happens among a few select minds, but the input comes from everywhere. 
I've been extremely satisfied with every change that I've seen to the IPG, but none of them have been mine. I'm to blame for one of them. Um, <laughs> um, the change, the, the downgrade in the penalty from insufficient randomization to insufficient shuffling from a game loss to a warning um, came out of the high-profile game loss at um, a Star City Games Open about a year ago that I think you all discussed on the air at the time. Yeah. And uh, Jared Silva went to Toby Elliott and said, look, we did the absolute right thing with the IPG at the time, but let's reevaluate. Now that we've seen this in practice, let's reevaluate and see if it still makes sense. Right. And at the time it was game loss. And that was one of the reasons that it hadn't been going right. out very much. And it's because people were like, well, I mean, he's, he's just a shuffle more. I mean, does that really deserve a game loss? But when right. you actually apply it really for reals, like, okay, you, know, you sort of say, well, either we're applying it or we're not. And if we do and it feels wrong, then maybe we should change it. So, good. So, I'm the fault of that one, but it wasn't my impetus. Well, you know, there's another level two judge in the area here who's responsible for one of the other changes in the communication policy. And that is one of the shortcuts, the whole issue of um, being able to target your opponent's planeswalkers. Um, actually directly and say, you know, I bolt Jace and have that not be some sort of a communication issue um, or not have that actually be a legal thing to say um, without having to go through the explanation of, okay, I'll target you. And then when that resolves, then I'll target, you know, I'll, I'll redirect the damage to this Jace that you control. Um, that whole thing happened with Arthur Halavase, who just um, two weeks ago certified for level two um, at, you know, a PTQ type event Um his opponent says, oh, I've got Seal Fire, and I'll sacrifice Seal Fire and deal two to your Ajani. And actually, I think he says, Seal of Fire targeting your Ajani. And so, you know, Arthur says, well, Ajani's not a legal target for Seal of Fire's ability. Um, too bad. <laughs> you know, try try again. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, his opponent calls the judge over and says, you know, he's not letting me do this. I should be able to do this, shouldn't I? And as the judge is starting to answer the question, Arthur kind of sees that he's about to give away the strategic information that will tell him how to do this. And so he, he sort of stops the judge short a little bit and says, um, hold on a second. I just need to make sure that you do not give any way, you know, in any way give out strategic information in your answer here um, and or show him, you know, if there is a way to deal damage here, how to do it. Um, <laughs> and so the judge sort of scratches his head for a second and says, um, no, that's not a legal play. <laughs> and the, and the players kind of like left with this. Well, well, I know I, I can do it, but I don't know how, <laughs> right. I don't know the magic words. And so, you know, that, that situation where somebody says, you know, I don't know the magic words to make this happen. Um, that's one of the things I, reasons I think that damage is no longer going on the stack is because that was very much a magic words situation. Um, where you know some players would get it and some players wouldn't, and it was just a matter of language, um, and and it wasn't really something that worked intuitively. So you know we go back to this with the the planeswalker being targeted issue, um, and you know we call that the Arthur Halavase shortcut. Um, <laughs> you know being able to target a planeswalker directly with lightning bolt now, um, because in that situation his opponent just sort of threw up his hands and said, "Well, I guess I'll target you then." And left it at that. Um, yeah. So he actually got out of it. 
Nice. Yeah. Arthur also uh, made day two of GP Portland, I believe. I don't recall how he finished. Uh, but I remember I was running the Twitter account at that event and was soliciting stories of judges doing well because there were quite a few that weekend. Indeed, there were. Yeah, yeah. That's um, you know, judges are actually we're not terrible players. I think there's always that joke, but you know, we're actually really not nearly as bad as people maybe think we are sometimes. But yeah, shortcuts aren't really created. Um, some smart guys spend a lot of time watching the way players talk and what they actually mean. So we can say, look, clearly he means to target you with lava spider with a seal of fire and redirect it to Jace. Maybe in this case he didn't, but generally, this is what he intends. Let's make the rules match that. Absolutely, that's you know making the rules match the expectations of players is a big part of what makes Magic a fun game to play. So great. So I think we've been going on almost two hours of recording here. Of course, I'm going to cut a whole bunch of parts out, so when you guys hear it, it'll be like 15 <laughs> minutes or something. Um, Kevin, thank you so much for sticking with us through this. Do you have any other any other things you want to talk about? Well, uh, let me just reiterate that uh, I, Sean's going to be putting information on how to contact your regional coordinators out there. Yes. If you have any questions about the way stuff works, uh, if you need help within the program, please feel free to contact Sean or myself or or anyone you can get a hold of and we will do the right thing to get your email to the right place. Absolutely. There should never be a dead end of the communication within the judge program. You should always be able to get to the right person to help you become part of the program if you're not and become a better part of the program if you're already within it. So I've gotten very good at the forward button on my email account. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Well, Kevin, um, you're doing some really awesome stuff there down in Texas in the whole Southwest. Um, we really wish you the best of luck um, in your continued struggle against those Vikings and you know, the herd, herd, herd per people up in the, the Northern Europe section of the world. Um, really thank you so much for um, coming in and also sort of stepping in when Jose's battery died here uh, while we were recording. So. Um, well, thank you for letting me be a part of it. It's it's kind of interesting to go from a listener to uh, to being able to put something out there. Um, with that, um, thank you for listening, and thank you for being a part of this, Kevin. Um, for all of us here at JudgeCast, this is Sean Caronese. I keep it fair. And this is Kevin Benzwanger. I keep it paranoid when Jose isn't around. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks for listening, and always remember, call a judge. I've actually been in downward-facing dog for the entire podcast. <laughs> <laughs>